Stories of Communism 23, The Sarcastic Refusenik. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Today we'll be talking about the memoir of a Soviet dissident named Arkady Polishchuk. Polishchuk was one of the refuseniks of the 1970s, the Jews who wanted to leave the USSR and emigrate to Israel. He tells his story in his memoir, Dancing on Thin Ice, Travails of a Russian Dissenter. Despite the fact that he's discussing deadly serious matters, issues which sent some of his friends to labor camps for years, he writes in a light-hearted, humorous tone that constantly points out the little ironies in Soviet life and philosophy. Some parts of it sound more like a Kurt Vonnegut novel than a serious memoir talking about life-or-death issues, but that doesn't make it any less informative. Polishchuk spent some time, before he became a dissident, of course, working for major state-run Soviet news outlets. In this position, he got to know that many of the reporters his government sent to foreign countries doubled as KGB agents, helping to foment political unrest. When he decided to apply to leave the country himself and help other refuseniks, he convinced the government that he had arrangements to reveal the names of those KGB agents if he were to disappear. This enabled him to be a bit more brazen and outspoken without being punished as hard as many others. But when he went over the line and actually staged a sit-in in the office of Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet leader at the time, that was a bit too much, and he was taken to jail for a few weeks. When he arrived in jail, the guards attempted to set him up to take a beating from the other prisoners. But he managed to turn the situation around with his clever sense of humor. Look, boys, a Jew were the first words I heard after two policemen opened the cell door to bring me in. The jailer smirked and left me facing my cellmates. Thirty-five pairs of eyes looked at me. I knew that my first reaction would determine my upcoming treatment. Oh, Yisrael, is that you? I cried into the dim light. It feels so good to find a cousin among these Russian thugs. Raucous laughter flooded the stinky cell. A shaggy guy, outraged to the depths of his Slavic soul that I dared to call him a Jew, was climbing down from the upper berth to punish me. I turned back towards the people and affably waved my hand to the guards, I knew they stood there in anticipation. To my horror, another inmate crawled out of his roomy den under the lower berth. After that, he shook my hand. The word mama was tattooed on his fleshy fingers. The bold exclamation mark on his thumb pointed to his strong filial attachment. Political? Yes, I said, but only in Russia. Name me a country where the wish to move to a warmer land is a crime. My wiry guardian angel did not react, and on the path back to his wooden platform said to his cellmate, Crawl back into your effing nest, Bertie. Judging by the dignity with which he carried himself, my angel had a criminal record that inspired respect. The situation of the Jews who wanted to emigrate was very strange. To have any hope of leaving, they had to apply for an exit visa. But filing such an application was a demonstration of disloyalty to the Communist Party. Due to external pressure and the international detente of the 1970s, a small number of Jews actually were permitted to emigrate each year. But those who applied and failed were often arrested, sometimes on trumped-up charges that exploited local anti-Semitism, with their abuse by other inmates actively encouraged. In this case, having deflected that anti-Semitism, Polishchuk found himself an object of curiosity. One guard sought him out for advice on how to make money. Other inmates peppered him with ridiculous questions based on other silly stereotypes. Why do Jews put Christian blood in matzah bread? The question caught me off guard, and I said, There are many fairy tales about Jews. Who's heard about Jews having horns? I did, said one prisoner. Me too, said the frail boy, my neighbor. So I'm here, try to find them. They all laughed. Well, you laugh now, but when you heard it for the first time, did you laugh? 
The frail boy began to feel chatty. Where did they get water in that desert for their matzah? I responded, all I know is that for the first 2,000 years, poor me, I was unable to pour your blood into my matzah. Heat rushed to my face as if I was admitting my Jewish crime. It took effort to look them in the eyes. Christians didn't even exist at that time. Of course, he always worked in an opportunity to comment on the communist system as well in these conversations. Do you eat matzah bread? was the next question from deep in the cell. I will if you can find some for me. My mother used to buy it in April on the black market. You're not a Russian, you're a communist, giggled an inmate. A good point. All of us are more communists than Russians. Twenty million party members, generation after generation, we've been reading the same papers and books, watching the same movies, worshipping the same saints. And what do they tell us? We're good. We're building paradise. Look at yourselves. Are we any good? Aren't we in hell already? So boys, be patient. They will destroy this prison and overnight put a flower bed here instead. And all of us, when we wake up that morning, won't be drunks anymore. For the first time in years, we'll brush our teeth, or what's left of them, and become gardeners, taking good care of roses and drinking lemonade for the rest of our no longer stinky lives. And as it happened at the moment of my arrival, raucous laughter flooded the cell. Now, I concluded, thanks to the inquisitive questions of my distinguished colleagues, you have learned why Jews want to leave this country. On this friendly exchange, let's finish today's concert. The performer will be given seven years of hard labor in perm camp number 36. Here, he alluded to another major issue, the fact that Jews were not the only ones who wanted to leave the poverty and repression of the USSR. In fact, one effect that intensified local resentment against the Refuseniks was the fact that Jews seemed to have the special privilege, a right for a small number of them to leave the country, that was denied to other groups who didn't have organized international pressure on their side. Recognizing this inequity, Paulus Chuck later became a strong advocate for evangelical Christians who wanted to emigrate as well. He only spent a few weeks in prison, but other refuseniks who didn't know his KGB secrets or have international prominence were much less fortunate. One of the scarier chapters of the book discusses the 1974 trial of a Jewish doctor named Mikhail Stern, who was arrested on charges of accepting bribes after his son applied to emigrate to Israel. Polishchuk and a friend managed to talk their way into the trial and take detailed notes on the proceedings. Upon arrival in town, Stern and his wife invited Polishchuk to visit. He discovered that the local police had an almost comical faith in the massive wealth of Jews. The doctor's wife, Ida, said, I'm sorry we have no decent spoons and forks. The prosecutor, Krochenko, picked them up straight from this table as evidence of our riches, frustrated after a futile two-day search for Jewish gold and diamonds. She waved her left hand, even the penny watch from my wrist. The prosecutor sincerely believed in the hidden wealth of the popular endocrinologist and had dispatched requests to dozens of cities, even in Siberia, to find out whether Stern kept his money in local, non-interest-bearing savings banks. The main charges were that Stern had taken small bribes from a number of patients in order to treat them. They completely ignored the realities of how so-called free medical care worked in the USSR, Doctors were not given enough money by the government to pay for even the most basic medicines, so needed to ask the patients to make up the difference. And doctors in general lived as impoverished a lifestyle as everyone else there. So in cases where they were successful, grateful patients often paid them a little extra. But as Polishchuk asked around, he found that Stern was one of the more generous doctors, having tried to take as little as possible from his poor patients. One of them had tried to get in to testify on his behalf, but was rebuked. You don't know him, insisted the cripple. He would give his own to others. So why don't you offer yourself as a witness? Didn't I go? I walked right into the judge's office. 
I have nobody to fear. And he said, here the man pursed his lips, portraying the judge, shook his head awkwardly as if his neck was made of wood, and choked out, Stern isn't charged with extorting money from you. A handful of witnesses were questioned in the court, most of whom praised Stern for his medical skills, and the prosecutors could only extract stories of the small amount of money taken with a lot of badgering and threatening. One mother broke down in tears because she was so grateful to Stern for curing her son and begged for forgiveness for testifying. An audience member commented quietly that the amount Stern was said to have extorted per month was less than the typical Soviet grocer received in bribes every day. Two dozen investigators for three months had been looking in all 25 districts of the region for witnesses among his patients. The prosecutor knew that for a physician to survive only on his meager salary was a challenge and that many asked patients for money. Forty witnesses, selected by the prosecutors out of 2,000, passed in three weeks in front of my eyes in the courtroom. 1,960 of the questioned patients had insisted that Stern had refused to take money when they begged him. Bizarrely, the prosecutor tried to back up his charges with an implication that Stern was some kind of sex pervert as well because he required his patients to undress in order to examine them. On the final day of the trial, the judge decided at the last minute to schedule the start of court an hour earlier, hoping to trick the doctor into one last legal offense when he would arrive late at his own trial. Luckily, in this case, he was thwarted by Soviet bureaucratic incompetence. Nobody informed the lawyers that the trial would start early, so it was delayed until the usual time. Unfortunately, however, for the core charges, Stern was sentenced to eight years in a labor camp. Polishchuk was able to smuggle his account of the trial out to the West, and thanks to international pressure, Stern was released in only 27 months. But of course, not every refusenik could be lucky enough to have a famous dissident at his trial. Manuel, what did you think of uh, this month's story? <laughs> Very interesting story. You know, you, you read this um, story from Polishchuk, uh, and you start uh, wondering, you know, what would this guy have been gone through or could have, have I'm even thinking, could have he made it out of those jails if he didn't have a good sense of humor or a way to get out of things uh, and fast on his feet. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how he was able to use humor as a coping mechanism, you know, when he was shoved in with a cell full of criminals to be set up for getting beaten up, he managed to turn the whole thing around. That was pretty cool. So in in one way, I, I was not aware that um, uh, the Jewish people also had a hard time in the former Soviet Union. I thought they were treated better since uh, the whole idea of communism was to treat everybody equal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is funny how, you know, we we keep hearing from the the left, especially these days in the U.S., how, you know, capitalism equals racism, and that's what makes everybody hate each other. And if only we were socialist, everybody would love each other. But uh, as we've seen from uh, the experiences that we talked about uh, in Polishchuk's story, there was a lot of uh, anti-Semitism and you know racial prejudice all over Russia, and still to and, this day and, there is. And according to the story, all those, all those um, uh, jokes, basically political jokes, but uh, based on ethnicity, uh, which some of those jokes are still around, aren't they? They are people believing that uh, every Jew is a rich person. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is sort of still a stereotype that lives to the modern day. And I mean, even the silly things like making matzah out of blood, right? I mean, you'd think that one's yeah. just totally ridiculous. You know, as as Polishchuk pointed out, how could that be true when the Christians to provide the blood weren't around for the first thousand years of the you know, first couple of thousand years of the <laughs> Jewish religion? Um, but yet, you know, you still hear, you know, in modern day, you know, especially in the Middle East, uh, you hear people still say those kinds of things. Wow. Uh, if you um, uh, read the story or just listen to the story that we just uh, heard, it's it's very interesting to see how um, some some uh, Christians also wanted to get out of there, and apparently they couldn't get out either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. You know, when there was all this international agitation to let this trickle of Jews come out to Israel, in a sense, that made things worse for the Jews because now they had this special privilege. You know, it wasn't much of a privilege, as we saw in the, the trial of Dr. Stern, trying to exercise it and get out of Russia could very well get you sent to a labor camp. But still, there were these tiny number of Jews who were actually allowed to leave the Soviet Union, which was something that, you know, a lot of Christians wanted to do, too. And just to revisit history a little bit, uh, uh, the state of Israel was basically recreated after World War II, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, you know, it was created as a homeland for Jews, you know, especially after the, the Holocaust and things like that. Um yeah, so a lot of Jews wanted to move there. You know, but of course, if you were in the Soviet Union, you probably wanted to move anywhere outside of there. Um, <laughs> not sure it was really something that special about Israel, just something that was easy for them to grab onto, that, you know, hey, we should have the right to go here in particular. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, uh, important part of the story is that the um, socialized medicine uh, part, which, you know, you assume that once you have social, socialized medicine that everybody's going to be treated and you don't have to worry about payment or anything. And here, basically, uh, this uh, Dr. Stern gentleman in the story is uh, brought to trial and put in jail for... Um, uh, basically, they say him for taking bribes or charging patients in... It sounds to me like they were treated as a as as a tip for doing a good job. And yeah, exactly. I, no, I, not just a tip, it, but also the, they need to give him money to buy their medicine on the black market because the government just wasn't giving him enough of the medicines he needed. And surprisingly enough, I didn't uh, I I didn't uh, connect the dots before the story about this because recently I heard. Well, I was talking to a friend from Greece, and his wife is a doctor, and he tells me that, yes, they have socialized medicine, but usually if you're a big tipper, basically you pay the doctors, you get treated right away. If not, you get in a long line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in some cases, it's not that the doctors are being mean, but just that they're paid so little by the government that they want to put in sort of the minimum work they have to. And if you want a doctor to put in extra hours, right, and make extra time to see you outside of the normal, you know, eight-hour day that he's required to do, um, doesn't he deserve some extra money? 
<laughs> yes. Um, this is actually recent. Um, uh, what I'm talk uh, talking about is something that is happening recently. So I think uh, nothing really changes in society. People are always going to uh, do a better job if they reward it somehow. Yeah, yeah, and you and you can't have a government override laws of supply and demand, right? I mean, being a doctor takes many years of hard work and study, and is a much more demanding and stressful uh, profession than a lot of others. So, you know, if if you're just going to give doctors sort of some very minimal stipend from the government, you should expect them to put in minimal work. <laughs> yes, and uh, one of the other parts that really um couldn't escape my my amusement because I just see it happen over and over again when people in power in government use the legal system and the power of government to uh, punish those that don't agree with them. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's another sort of interesting thing that happens when governments try to outlaw supply and demand, right? I mean, it sort of inherently creates a situation where people have to go around the official rules if they actually want to get stuff done, right? Or, or if they actually want, you know, quality medical care, or if they want all the medicines that the government's rationing and things like that. And when everybody has to go around the, the rules to get things done, it means that everybody is, you know, liable for prosecution by the government whenever the government finds it convenient. Yeah, and that's exactly. what happened to Dr. Stern here. He was doing the same thing as every other doctor in the Soviet Union, you know, and as some people pointed out, not just doctors, as almost every job you had in the Soviet Union, you'd have to do stuff off the books to get things done. And that meant that any time the government wanted to get you, they had a ready-made charge to throw you into a labor yeah. camp. And that's that's what I got out of this story that I I believe that many of the other doctors were using the same system. It's just that he didn't follow some of the other rules that they wanted him to follow, and then they have a ready-made charge for them. Right. Throw him I mean, in jail. I mean, he requested to leave the Soviet Union, but they didn't want to try him for that because that would look bad. So they found some other crime that he'd officially committed and, and were able to lock him up for that. Exactly. He really turned Miss Dr. Stern's life around. He's uh, He was doomed there for yeah. many years in prison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's the sad thing is, you know, you read a story like this and it makes you think, okay, how many other Dr. Stearns were there who were, you know, prosecuted in some obscure corner of the Soviet Union and someone like Polishchuk just wasn't around to, to help advocate for them? Um, Absolutely. And the last, the last point that I would make out of the book, that I got out of the book, is that it really helps to to be quick on your feet and know when to um, uh, go against um, uh, against a, a mob and when to kind of play along <laughs> enough to survive. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know someone like Polishchuk. I mean, the reason why he's still around to write his story, right, is his great survival instincts and his, yeah. you know agility and sort of using humor at the right times to to exactly. deflect the attacks on him 
Um, yeah, so that is, that is very important, especially when you're confronted with uh, literally uh, a mob on the other side or where you, you're completely out of power. And your first instinct should be, okay, what do I have to do to survive this thing and fight another day? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it is important. So, by the way, one, one other aspect you haven't brought up that I think is worth discussing is just this idea that people had to fight so hard to be able to leave the USSR. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about it, you know, how many countries are there where they're not at war, you know, it's peacetime, and yet people so desperately want to leave that the government has to use, you know, military force to keep them inside? That's a good question. I mean, I can only think of maybe three or four. Yeah, I mean, it seems to consistently happen in socialist countries, right? I mean, people yeah. are desperate to get And all the, all the ones that I'm thinking of are socialist communist countries. Right. I mean, like we've heard about, you know, people escaping from North Korea, you know, mm -hmm. people escaping from Cuba, you know. Mm -hmm. it, and I think, you know, the real issue here is that when you're in a socialist or communist country, essentially everybody's a slave of the government. So someone who tries mm -hmm. to emigrate is basically a runaway slave, right? And when you're, you know, running an entire economy based on slave labor, you, you can't let the slaves run away. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that, but that is true. Um, they Every time somebody leaves, it's one less hand that they have to plow the land. Right, and since they don't, you know, uh, compensate people, uh, appropriately for the labor they do, you know, the, I mean, nobody wants to do the jobs they're assigned. They all want to get away and go somewhere where they can, you know, freely exchange their labor with other people and get what it's worth. Well, what a great story. I, I am glad this book was written and I'm, and I'm very happy that, that, um, uh, we were able to read it, and thanks to his quickness of uh, Polish Chuck. Anyway, there's plenty more in Polish Chuck's memoir about the life of refuseniks in that period of the USSR, and the ironic humor that helps to balance out the chilling depiction of travesties of justice like the Stern trial. We highly recommend checking it out. As always, you can find show notes and links to our source materials at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.